This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for December 2nd, 2012. The Gospel is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 21, verses 25 through 36. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Today is the first Sunday of the new year. The Christian year starts on the first Sunday of Advent, which is today. And the word Adventus comes is where we get the word Advent from, and it is Latin, which means coming. Um, and obviously the coming refers to the coming of Christ, both in his birth, um, which we will celebrate in a few weeks, but also in his um, coming again to judge the living and the dead. And it's been the tradition of the church for nearly 2,000 years now to have a, a circle, a wreath with greens on it that we put candles in. And we light a candle each Sunday. And the reason for that was uh, the taking over of an old pagan tradition where as the days grew shorter as we approached the winter solstice they would light another candle because you needed more light because the days weren't as long and so we light first the candle on the front right and then the candle on the front left and then we'll come to the pink candle in the back and then light the fourth one and then at christmas time we light the center candle the christ candle and at christmas eve they all turn white as day starts to lengthen again and grow longer, but more so as the light of Christ, who is the light of the world, comes into the world to redeem us. And each one of these candles has a meaning and a theme to it. So every week of Advent actually has a theme that we are called to um, contemplate, to meditate on, to sort of make it the theme for our week. And the first candle is the candle of hope. Hope. It's not just a town in Arkansas, um, although it is a town in Arkansas. Um, but it's a big term, isn't it? You know, hope is something that everybody wants. You know, we all have it. The question is, is what do we hope in? What kinds of things do you hope for this, this time this year? Hmm? Peace in Jerusalem? I bet the kids have some things they hope for. <laughs> An Xbox? No, oh, original Xbox. They know what the deal is. <laughs> we all hope for some things, and, and we do in our life. In our work, we hope for a raise or a promotion or a bonus or at least recognition for hard work that we've done. In our families, we hope that um, we'll get along, you know, and that there will be uh, peace and harmony and everybody will cooperate and work well together. You know, some of us hope our spouses will get a clue. Um, <laughs> um, some of us hope that, you know, our kids will start listening to us. Um, we hope all sorts of things. Some of us hope that our friends or our relatives or our parents will, will finally you know, do the things they need to do. We all have different hopes. and expect, Some of us hope that we'll win the lottery. I think a lot of people were hoping that last week. Um, apparently there were only two who actually made it, but, um, but they were hoping. And so we have lots of hopes, but to really understand what hope really means, you have to go to its antonym, the opposite. Do you know what the opposite of hope is? Despair. It really comes from an older English, despair, 
which is opposed to DES, which is, and if you do dispair, what it means is to cleave into two that which has been joined, that which has been paired. And if you think about it, that's really what is the opposite of hope, isn't it? Because when we dispair, when we cleave in two, we believe that our future is no longer connected to our present and that we have no control over anything that will come our way. You know, we believe that everything we've learned about work hard and get ahead and be nice to people and they'll be nice to you, all those kinds of lessons that we were taught don't seem to work anymore. And it doesn't seem no matter how hard we try that, that bad things are going to come our way anyway. It doesn't really matter. And we almost walk around looking over our shoulder wondering when the other shoe's going to drop. You know, that's what despair is really about. It's a sense of, we call it hopelessness, but it's really a belief that our life is totally out of our control and that we are just being pushed about by the winds of, of fate and destiny. And, and it leads to isolation and depression because we're without hope. And so people look for hope. We look for hope in all sorts of things. We look for hope in our institutions. We look for hope in our politicians. You know, we look for hope in our um, religious leaders. You know, we look for hope in, in finding somebody to marry us and love us for who we are forever and ever. Amen. But all of those things lead us back to despair. Because the kinds of things that we tend to place our hope in are worldly things. They're transient things. And we tend to believe that somehow or other, if we could just do it the right way, that we would live happily ever after. That everything would be wonderful. Now, it's not an uncommon view. I think most people have it. Very few people are unwilling to let go of that control. And yet, in order to keep it from being dispairing of splitting in two, that's exactly what we do. We try to control the world around us. We try to control the people around us. We try to control our money. We try to control our environment. We try to control everything. Whenever a natural disaster happens, what's the first thing that somebody asks? Whose fault? No, whose fault is that? You know, I was listening to radio earlier this week, and apparently FEMA had gone back to New York City and Long Island and stuff and, uh, and were being yelled at because they hadn't gotten all the power on and everything yet. And I'm thinking, I wonder how many of the people who were actually in that room had a clue how to hook up somebody's power. Probably nobody, if you think about it, and they're going, oh, why'd they send me here? <laughs> I don't know what to do. But people were frustrated. Because they don't have heat, they don't have, you know, electricity, many of them don't have homes even. And so they want somebody to be responsible. Somebody who says, I have the ability to take care of it. Now, why do they want those things? Because they want hope. They want to know that it's going to be different. And so we do that. We try to control things around us. We look for reasons why things happen. Because if we knew why something happened, like the superstorm, Sandy, then we could stop the next one. At least that's what we want to tell ourselves. If we could fix the climate, then the world would be good. If we could understand one another, then we could have peace and people wouldn't go to war anymore. If our spouses would just pick up their underwear, life would be better. 
I mean, whatever it is. It's always if something would happen, then life would be good. But it never quite seems to work out. It's not anything new, by the way. If you lived in the Roman Empire at its height, you know, around the time that Caesar Augustus was ending his um, reign, you would have believed that this was going to last forever. No one had ever seen in the Western world anything like this. I mean, they had running water. You know, nobody had running water. They had public toilets. You know, and this isn't an age when scientific revolution wasn't really the big thing. You know, they had philosophers and schools of philosophy. Education was highly valued. Theater was there. Music was out. And the arts, you know, games, great gladiatorial games. We now call them football um, that went on in big arenas that people went to. I mean, it was an amazing thing. And they thought the world doesn't get any better. And nothing could ever stop this from going on. Sounds a lot like, you know, the, the stock market of the 90s, doesn't it? That nothing could ever stop it from going on. And yet, within a few hundred years, do you know what happened? Yeah, the whole western half of the empire just collapsed. And there wasn't a government there anymore. And what we know of is the Dark Ages descended. And people didn't learn how to read anymore. And they couldn't read or write. And then plague came in and decimated half of the population. And people thought, what happened to the good old days that we heard about? Because they were gone. The aqueducts were falling apart. And there was only one institution in the West that survived that. Do you know what institution that was? The church. Because you see, the church had never believed in or trusted in the hope of the world. They certainly weren't above using the advantages of the world, but that wasn't ever their hope. Their hope was always in following God. And while certainly the church has had corrupt people and it had corrupt people in those times, they've also had wonderful saints who weren't willing to go down that road. At the same time that we saw the rise of Rome and the decadence that, that arose is the same time that the monastic movement started. And you start having monasteries and convents where people would take vows of poverty because they didn't want to buy into what the world was trying to sell them. Because they thought if we put our trust in that, we're going to fail. Now, it's not that the wealth is a bad thing. It's just a thing. It's where do you put your hope? And when we put our hope in politicians, or in their case, emperors, when we put our hope in the economy, or in their case, booty from the conquest that Rome was making and tribute that they received, when we put our hope in the way other people treat us and behave, then we'll be disappointed. And, and we too will enter into a dark age that we call despair. But there is another way. There's another path that we can take. And that's to put our hope not in the things that the world has to offer, but in the promises of God through Christ Jesus. Because you see, what he promises is a kingdom where the lamb and the lion will lie down together and the lamb doesn't get eaten. He promises a kingdom where people will take their swords and beat them into plowshares so that they can grow more food. 
He teaches of a kingdom where there is no more sighing. Wouldn't that be wonderful if he didn't have... You know, even my dog does that to me when he's not happy. If you say, stop that, he goes, and lays down. I always thought that's one of the best verses in the, in the scripture in Revelation, where there is neither sighing nor sorrow. I'm sure he's talking about my dog. Where there's not sighing, where there's not sorrow, where there's no weeping or crying, where there's no more hunger or thirst, where people truly love one another, not because they have to, not because there's some law about it, but because they want to, because they choose to. So how do we get to that? Well, you may have heard the Mayan calendar says that the world's going to end on December 21st of this year. Did you all hear about that? It's a rather interesting prophecy given that it comes right towards the end of Advent. I just thought that was kind of interesting because it's also when we celebrate the second coming of Christ. And I thought, well, I suppose it's possible. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how they got December 21st exactly, but what would you think if Jesus came back and the world ended on December 21st? Yeah. Now, you do realize what happens between now and then, don't you? Economy collapses, war breaks out everywhere, famine, plague, you know, yucky stuff. It won't be good. But for some reason or other, for the Christian community, that was good news. Because it meant that Jesus was coming back. And this kingdom would be inaugurated. And even the suffering that we might have to bear between now and then meant very little for the hope that was in us. That's why Paul tells us, you know, about hope. He says, and, and how do we get to that kind of hope, the kind of hope, the hope in what Christ offers? Well, first of all, you suffer. First of all, he says, rejoice in your sufferings. Did you know that? Rejoice in your sufferings. That's, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? Oh, good, I'm suffering. Hallelujah. Bring it on, Lord. More suffering. I'm having a good time. We usually put those people away, don't we? But he says, rejoice in your sufferings. But he's not just doing it because he's a masochist. He's doing it because if you rejoice in your sufferings, it's because you know what is coming. That suffering produces endurance. That endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. Because the hope we have is of the kingdom of God, not of the kingdom of this world. There is no president who will solve our problems. There is no Senate or Congress that will solve our problems. There's no preacher that will solve our problems. But there is a Savior who will make our world into what it is meant to be in his time. So our question is always, so what's the problem with his time? Why isn't he here? Well, it could well be because we haven't suffered enough. Now, is that because God likes us to suffer? No. Is it because God wants us to be able to endure? Probably. Is he wants us to develop good character? Likely. But more importantly, he wants us to have hope. You know, anybody who does anything meaningful knows that it's not easy. You know, I suspect that most kids... Consider homework suffering. 
I certainly did. I mean, the last thing I wanted to do when I went home from school was homework. I mean, I've been doing work all day. Why do I need to go home and do work too? It felt like suffering to me. But the truth is, it sure did help me a lot. If they'd asked me to write a 20-page paper in the first grade, I'd have been in trouble. That would have been pretty tough. I had to write a lot of them in college and grad school. And yet, it felt like suffering. Memorizing multiplication tables felt like torture. And that whole, well, I didn't have new math. I had old math, but I'm too old for new math. And they got newer new math anyway, so. And that whole I before E except after C or whenever else we decide we're not going to use it thing, I never did get. All those kind of things they want you to memorize. And I could remember seeing the thing, I don't know why I'm doing all this. I don't understand the point of it. Who cares? You know, because you can't really contemplate what's coming. My nephew, uh, some of you know, is an ultra marathon runner. For those of you who don't know what an ultra marathon is, it's a race of 50 to 100 miles in one day. I call him insane because um, they, they just run all day long. And I said, how in the world do you ever get to where you can run 100 miles? In his first 100-mile uh, race, by the way, he came in third, first one he ever ran in. I said, how do you do that? He said, practice. I said, well, how much do you practice? He said, every day. I said, every day? He said, yeah, every day. I said, what if you don't feel well? He said, doesn't matter. What if there's snow on the ground? Doesn't matter. You know, he would even go out running in the hills of southeastern Ohio barefooted. Do you know why? Toughen your feet up. He decided to take spring break and go out to the Rocky Mountains. Now, he didn't know anybody in the Rocky Mountains, mind you, but he decided to go there anyway so that he could run in the Rocky Mountains because the air's thinner and it'd be harder. I said, doesn't that hurt? He goes, oh, yeah. And I said, then why do it? Because it makes you stronger. The more you do it, the more you can do it. He said, you can't get up one morning and decide to run 100 miles. It doesn't work that way. And so he runs a minimum of eight miles every day of his life. He has to be really sick to not run. A minimum of eight miles a day. Rain, snow. And what I've learned by watching him is that what Paul said was true. That the suffering of doing this does produce endurance and he's able to run like that. But even more so, what I found out was that it produces character. It changed who he was as a young man. Because now, all of a sudden, he started noticing things. When was the last time you noticed the shape of a knot on a tree? When was the last time you actually paid attention to a couple of birds who were sitting on a branch? Or a squirrel watching to see what was going on? Or a hawk? And yet he writes a blog all the time about these things because if you run eight miles a day, there's not a whole lot else to do. You know, where he runs, he can't text anyway, so that wouldn't work. And so he observes, he sees God's creation. And by slowing his world down, it produced not only the strength and endurance, but it changed his character to where he had an appreciation of existence itself and life that God gave to him. It was the amazing thing about the Middle Ages. Do you know what 
people came to really appreciate in the Middle Ages? More than anything. A good meal. If somebody threw a party and invited you and they cooked a goose, you thought you'd died and gone to heaven. You know, if they'd walked in a, in a grocery store, they would have passed out from delight. But we have it all the time, and we just take it for granted. We think nothing of it anymore. That's the difference between having character and not having character. Is seeing the world for what you do have, that's character. Seeing the world for what you don't have is lack of character. And our society suffers from it, just like the Roman society did, partly because we've been so successful, partly because the greatest generation has done so much for us that we didn't have to do ourselves. And we just thought it was normal. We didn't know they had to work hard to get it. Well, they told us that, but they also had to walk up, my, up you know, two miles uphill to school back and forth in 10 feet of snow every day. <laughs> so we didn't pay attention. And now, as our economy struggles more, as the world's economy struggles more, as our country becomes more divided about what values are right or not right, we don't know how to treat one another. We don't know how to live with character anymore because we're too busy trying to control it, which will only bring us despair. Because, you see, deep down we believe that if we elected the right party, America would be in great shape. The only problem is the right party depends on which party you like. And the real problem with it is it goes even deeper than that. Do you know what the definition of right is? Whatever I think. Because I wouldn't think it if it wasn't right, would I? Why would I think something that was wrong? That would be dumb. If I thought you were right and I was wrong, I'd think the way you do. And so obviously you're wrong. And the problem with that whole way of thinking is that the truth is that we're all wrong. There is only one truth, and that's God's truth. That's God's kingdom. It's God's way. And it doesn't matter which political or theological philosophy or societal philosophy you pull out. They all deviate from God's direction and God's guidance because they all ultimately depend on human guidance and human direction. And until we are willing to put our hope in one who is willing to let us suffer and ask us to rejoice so that we can have endurance and character, we will never know the kingdom. And so as you go out into the world this week, I want to challenge you to ask yourself, what is it that I'm really hoping for? Are my hopes actually too small? Do I just hope for things that are in this world, like a promotion or, you know, a good present or good health or, or any, you know, anything that's worldly? Is it that, not that my hopes aren't big enough, that they're, they're too big, but that they're too small? And they're relying on things and people that are too small. Or am I willing to hope in the world that God is bringing into existence even as I think about it? And am I willing to open my eyes to look around for how I can catch a ride on it and participate in it? Because you see, it is true. 
that God will come again to judge the living and the dead. And it is true that there will be no more evil or sin in his kingdom. And it is true that he will separate the sheep from the goats. The only truth that is yet to be foretold is which one do you want to be? Do you know what the difference between a sheep and a goat is? Well, I can see why we got a problem. Nobody knows the difference between a sheep and a goat. (laughs) If you tell a sheep to do something, you know what the sheep does? It does it. If you tell a goat to do something, you know what the goat does? Yeah, butcha. It says, heck with you. I'll do what I want. So when God's calling you and telling you to do something, which one are you? Are you the sheep or are you the goat? The choice is ours. God would not have that any of us would not be part of his kingdom. But he would not force any of us to be part of it either. Where do you put your hope? In everything that you do this week, ask yourself. Every time you start getting irritated at your kids, your spouse, your neighbors, whoever it is. Ask yourself, why am I getting irritated? What is my hope in? Do I really trust God so little that I need to be so irritated at the transient things of this world. And is that really the truth that I want to hope in? Hope is the first theme of Advent. Let's take it seriously this year. And maybe, even if he doesn't come back on December 21st, say he waits until the 26th after Christmas or bank open up their presents. But even if he doesn't come back on December 21st, maybe when we do come to Christmas time, the real gift we receive will be something much greater than something wrapped in a shiny package. Amen. You were just-